0: You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast, I'm Victoria Brazel, and tonight I'm recording a very special episode with two new friends of Simulcast, uh, Alex Jolly and Robbie Lloyd, and I'm going to introduce them in turn, but just by way of introduction to the episode here, we're going to be talking about what the aviation industry really has to offer simulation. It's something we've been talking about for 25 years, but tonight the rubber hits the road, and we're going to find out what kind of perspectives uh, a pilot might have on the kind of health care simulation that we do. So by way of introduction, first of all, uh, Robbie Lloyd, who is an emergency medicine trainee in the UK. He's also an education fellow and hence his interest in simulation this year. And perhaps almost most importantly, Robbie, he's a fellow podcaster. And if you're interested, uh, pop along to pondermed.com where he both blogs and podcasts about all sorts of things related to his professional career. How are you, Robbie?
1: I'm very well, Victoria. Thanks for that very nice introduction. Yeah, excited to record with uh, with you. I've been a been a fan of your work for a while. <laughs> oh, you,
0: you can come back with that kind of compliment. <laughs> and uh, joining him, Captain Alex Jolly, who is a uh, airline captain, uh, and he's been furloughed for the most part, over the last little while for reasons that are not particularly surprising to anyone. Uh, But he's here and he's going to be talking a little bit about his involvement with some of Robbie's simulations over the last little while. But can I welcome you, Alex, and say thanks so much for your time?
2: Yeah, Thank you, Victoria. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to talking about things today.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, let's um, start with a little bit of context. Maybe, Robbie, you can just tell us a little bit about the hospital where you work. And maybe uh, even leading up to where this program started, tell us about the kind of simulation that you've been involved with and that you were doing uh, around the time of before and when COVID first started.
1: Yeah, so I w- I'm an emergency medicine trainee, as you say, and i um have been working at a hospital called the Whittington NHS Trust in North London uh, for the last year and a bit. My my history with simulation is pretty short, really. I mean, I did some when I was uh, F1, F2, or I know you call it internship in Australia. I did a bit of it then, and it was largely in the simulation lab. Um, And that was entirely as a participant as opposed to a faculty member. I... I'd always been interested in it and think it's really cool when it's done in the real environment. I remember what I mean, I've watched a few quite interesting sims in my real working environment, um, but it's only really been recently that I've become a faculty member. But back when COVID started in, what well, it was sort of April, end of April, beginning of May, I was crippled with anxiety about what I was going to do with these patients and how it was all going to play out. There was, I mean, I'm sure everybody had the same feeling. But I also was quite aware of how lots of my colleagues are doing lots of really impressive things to help the department out. And so I felt pressure to do that as well. And I decided to hone in on sim. So I just started running some really amateur hour in situ sims in my department when it wasn't that busy. And it wasn't that busy in the mornings. I don't know what other people found, but we just didn't have any patients in the morning. And then they all came in the afternoon. So in the mornings we were doing quite regular sim. And around the same time, and uh, a pop-up cafe turned up in our canteen downstairs called Project Wingman. And I went down a couple of times and there was these incredibly handsome looking people in their full uniform, aviation uniform with their wings and their, I don't know what you remember, you call them the shoulders, but just full uniform, pretty cool. And they were making me really nice free coffee.
0: All right. Well, just before you get into that, because I'm going to get Alex to tell the the serendipitous story, but step us back a little bit. Like, how big is the Whittington and how big is your emergency department? How many staff have you got? Give us a little bit of a sense of that.
1: I know we we have, uh, I think, eight or nine uh, full-time consultants, um, and we have five emergency medicine trainees in higher specialty training, and then I think another five who are... S.H.O. So at the beginning of their training, we've also got lots and lots of interns working. I mean, it's a busy department. It's certainly not the biggest department that I've trained in. We rotate every year, um, and I was working in a much bigger place last year. But it's it's a it's a busy department, and we've actually recently had a uh, we've um, absorbed two other hospitals worth of pediatrics. So we have had a huge upturn in how many cases we're seeing in the department. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a it's a pretty standard busy but relatively small for London, Amy.
0: And just by way of context for those COVID sims, so I presume you were doing the kind of things that people were doing particularly early on in the pandemic and practising airway management and cardiac arrests and all the things that required thinking about how we used our PPE. Were they the kinds of things you were simulating?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we were doing lots of patient arrives with SATs of 90 on 15 litres through a non-rebreather. What do you do next? Uh, so we we're getting patients onto CPAP, and he, um, I personally found the kind of mechanics of actually safely getting a patient onto CPAP, getting the machine on, turning it on, knowing what the settings are, getting the face mask on—all of those really, quite seemingly quite simple processes, mini mini processes within it, quite complicated, and actually when you particularly when you're stressed out, full PPE on bit of a nightmare and that's really what stimulated me thinking like we need to start drilling this we need to start going through Mm it as a team so yeah we did some cardiac we did some cardiac arrest stuff as well um we got the anaesthetist down to help us with intubation because of course we have um anaesthetists doing all of our intubations here controversial (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, but no we we'll talk a bit more i'm sure later on in the conversation about how it's really brought lots of the um the specialties closer together actually Yes. yeah
0: yeah, so this is, a, I guess, a familiar story in some ways, thinking about what we're going to need for the pandemic. And as you described, there's both uh, teamwork in, say, the emergency department, but there's also interfaces between different teams that are relevant. I might actually now skip over to Alex to tell us a little bit about uh, his lead up to this fateful meeting in the Wingman Cafe, uh, Alex. Tell us what the hell are you doing in his hospital, and uh, and tell us about then this meeting that uh, Robbie can then take it further from.
2: Yeah, sure. sure. Thanks, Adora. So uh, the Project Wingman uh, Lounge that Robbie refers to uh, is a charity that's based in the UK, and actually we spread as far our wings as far as New York in the end as well. But we had seventy lounges uh, at the peak of the pandemic uh, in the UK. Uh, And our aim was purely to provide uh, an area of decompression for staff and an option uh, to signpost those who needed perhaps a bit more care uh, to a relevant team within the hospital. Uh, So that started at the end of March. Uh, The whole charity was founded by uh, Captain Dave Fielding and Captain Emma Henderson, uh, of which Dave has actually joined me now in the sim side of things. Uh, but But, my involvement was right at the beginning. Uh, the Whittington being the first hospital, uh, and at the end of March, we quite simply found a space just to the side of the canteen uh managed to get a projector up, uh get free tea and coffee from donations from the local area through uh, through wish list donations, uh, and then we created an airline lounge, and I guess that that follows on then neatly onto uh the uh, serendipitous meetings, uh, the situations of chance and the conversations that generated with uh, with the clinicians and medics uh, as a result of that. And we just started sharing stories really about, about events that happened in our careers. I've, I've been flying for about 12, 13 years uh, as a commercial pilot now. And, uh, and one of the most classic questions I get asked is, uh, tell me the most dangerous thing that ever happened to you or tell, give me an example of something that that was really interesting on a day out uh, and the conversation really flowed from there and we started talking about teamwork and communication and just a bit more information on those those lines and and i think that that is where uh, we started to then get invited uh to watch simulation and it was just the off chance my meeting with robbie uh, there was a junior doctor called sarah who who knew i was interested in coming to watch simulation Uh, And uh, having served her a cup of tea, uh, she took me to go and meet Robbie, who was currently carrying out a podcast, I believe, at the time. Uh, And uh, we got chatting uh, and and Robbie quite simply invited me to to go and watch a simulation in Resus. Um, and And that's really where it all began. Um, right, fantastic. And, yeah.
0: So it's a combination of Robbie being such a shy retiring type. I've, <laughs> I've known that, obviously, in the short time that I've met yeah. him, as well as being something of a dilettante and drinking a lot of coffee in the cafe. This was obviously a meeting that was always going to happen, Robbie. Is that pretty much your recollection of it as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, um, Alex is, is now the most popular man at the Whittington Hospital uh and i felt like i was stealing him away uh at the beginning saying come watch our sim come watch us sim you can see he knows everybody's name he's part of the furniture now but yeah it's it's to be honest with you it took me a bit longer for the penny to drop than i than it should have done because i had a couple of meetings with him where we'd have a coffee talk pilots and doctors and it it really took a, an introduction in a more formal way to be like, look, Alex is actually quite interested in training. I was like, hold on a minute, mate, come and watch us do a sim. So literally two days later, he's in resus, and the process was um, I didn't you know, I didn't really know how it was going to play out. The, you know, Alex is a he's now badged up as a as an, a CRM trainer in aviation, which is another story. But, but at that point, he was just a a, a pilot, just a pilot, but he was, you know, he was somebody who I didn't I didn't know whether he was gonna have anything to say. He might not understand anything that's going on. So I just say come and watch. And he didn't help us with the debrief in this first simulation. He just stood there in full uniform, which in itself kind of added some cool energy to the sim. Um and what I then asked him to do, which is kind of what I'd been doing with the sims that had led up to that, the the COVID Sims, Um, was doing a write-up so I was writing key learning points and emailing them out to the people that would benefit from the learning and so what I asked Alex to do was can you just do a write-up some of the things that you picked up on and
0: okay
1: yeah this this write-up was is one of the most important educational documents I've ever read Uh, yeah all right
0: well let's let's wind back to this so Alex you're standing there in your full uniform apparently with the whole hospital swooning over you as told by Robbie but you're standing there in your full uniform you're watching this uh simulation going on in recess can you put your headspace back there and tell us what it looked like and what did you think
2: yeah I, I think I think before the sim actually began Robbie had given me a little bit of homework to do the night before my first invite and he'd given me uh or give me a reference uh, to look up the advanced life support, the ALS algorithm that they use. Um, so I, I had a very brief look at that. Um, and there were so many similarities, so many parallels with failure management, certainly on my Airbus fleet that we use. So quite a scripted algorithm that you follow. So I had a little bit of information before I went to watch the first sim. That said, uh it it kind of blew me away a little bit watching, watching a simulation. Uh it was it was quite a a high intensity sim with lots of different specialties arriving at the same time. And I'm I'm just stood there in the corner watching uh and watching the, the just this communication uh, overflow almost. There's so many people in the room, lots of conversations, lots of uh, thoughts and lots of different levels of expertise as well. um So for me, I think I was quite grateful that Robbie had let me uh, just simply observe the first one, really take it in. I think it was quite it was quite a sensory overload for me for the first time uh, watching it. But that said, uh, it was fascinating, absolutely incredible to watch. And and actually, what was really impressive was that uh, without any clinical knowledge whatsoever, it was still I was still able to to see the parallels and see those human factors in in full flow as well whilst watching a simulation. So so yeah, very very uh, very inspiring to watch it, but also quite. Uh, quite an interesting scenario, quite high energy scenario to observe.
0: Yes. And it must have been interesting because I'm sure you got some impressions of that weren't just fascinated, but some things that you thought were good and maybe some things you thought were not so good. And yet we're often very hesitant to provide feedback to people if we feel like we don't necessarily understand their context. That must have been a sort of interesting thing for you to navigate as you're writing these reports and, and answering the obvious questions when the clinicians say, are we any good? Are we any good? What? Did, how did you navigate that?
2: I think I think it really helps that having been a member of Project Wingman uh for quite a few months prior to the first sim uh it really disarmed the scenario before it began so the the feedback was always going to be I think quite well received because we had developed a relationship within the hospital and we we knew a lot of the staff already so that certainly helped with the feedback i think the other thing as well is that the actual style of write up and the feedback we provided and we have done ever since has been very constructive. Uh, you know, we've we've been very very complimentary of things that we've seen done really well, uh, and then areas perhaps where, from an aviation perspective, uh, we moved on slightly or we've changed our style in aviation. Uh, the key was to really share an insight into aviation examples and 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 basically compare how we would do it if we were flying an aircraft uh, as a way of providing feedback. So it was it was very much a case of ensuring that it wasn't personal, the feedback, but at the same time, it was an opportunity to, where there are areas of improvement, give specific examples in aviation. And I think that that was the way to uh, disarm it uh, without it coming across as too critical.
0: Yes, and that's a little bit too tantalising there, Alex. You're going to have to give us a specific <laughs> yeah, example. Would that be, it was, Absolutely. be really useful? Yeah,
2: Yeah. of course. So, uh, so for instance, uh, we're watching um uh, a, a trauma sim lots of lots of different specialties in the room uh lots of different drugs being requested at the same time and people wearing ppe as well and we're seeing this transfer of information these re- requests a bit like air traffic control requesting something of flight crew and there was absolutely no readbacks there was no confirmation so no ev- immediate under- or confirmation of understanding what had been asked of them and that And that was to be said for not not only drug requests and dosages but also safety critical procedures and it really got me thinking uh, you know there's a great opportunity here to to just add a layer of safety by by reading back immediately what was being asked of a person before they ran off to go and get something so a drug request was a classic example of that and another and another really important one was the uh was the the gauging of the severity of a situation and prioritization in these real high acuity events and i think in aviation again we we really try and communicate that by by asking people especially cabin crew if they're in a separate cabin to us they, they they're the eyes for us if there was heaven forbid some form of smoke or fire event in the in the cabin and and really gauging the severity of a situation by asking them quite simply 1 to 10 how how serious do they perceive the threat uh, and again, that that really helps helps you as as the person who's leading a, a scenario uh, prioritize. And so again, there are lots of lots of people, different specialties working on the patient, different parts of the patient, uh, and perhaps there was an opportunity for people to share how serious they perceive their individual facet or their area of expertise uh, regarding the patient on that on that example
0: yeah so some closed loop communication mm. and that kind of declaring the emergency sort of making things explicit rather than assumed mm-hmm. uh is 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 that how you saw it, Robbie? Were these the kinds of surprises you got in the reports and the just general feedback you were getting from the pilots, Alex and others?
1: yeah, I mean, there's been patterns there's definitely been themes that we've picked up on over the course of what it's been now, Alex about forty sims or so um and readback is a really big one it's only when you have it spelt out to you by someone like Alex do you realize how little you do it um, A couple of things that they the, a couple of other things that they pick up on regularly um which i have really changed my practice actually uh one is this concept of pressure testing decision making um, so you know you're going down you're in a resuscitation you're in a big case, and you're team leading and you're kind of Going down a rabbit hole with a patient, and perhaps that is the correct rabbit hole to go down, but a really useful question to ask that the aviation guys have have really drummed into us is guys, as a team, is there anything that you're is there potentially something that we 're doing wrong here? Could this be the wrong diagnosis? Could we be making the wrong decision here and it just sort of flips it and then you get the team talking about what the potential other things are. And just, I think it's just a slightly different uh, window to look at the case from. I found that very interesting. I think the biggest thing though, that I've taken away from um, the simulations that uh, Alex and his colleagues have been involved in is, it it kind of goes along with the pressure testing, decision-making concept, and that's empowering the team. I think that a, a, a way that we're trained in medicine, particularly when you go on, ALS courses, for example, ATLS, you're very much taught to be, if you're the team leader, uh, the conductor of an orchestra. You're stood at the end of the bed, You've got your gloves off, your hands off the patient, you're your hands behind your back, and you're calling the shots. Yes, you're encouraged to share your mental model. Yes, you're encouraged to um, to work and communicate well with your team, but there's something really cool as a leader about saying, guys, what do you reckon? What do you think's going on here? Asking the junior nurse, the student nurse, who's the other side of the, the bay, are you seeing anything that I'm not seeing? Asking the, the surgical registrar who came down to put the chest strain in the trauma patient, what do you make of the situation? Am I missing anything here? And I just think that kind of that disarming approach of saying to your team, look, I don't know whether I might be wrong here. Is there anything I'm missing? And Everybody, can you voice up? I feel like it seems so simple, but I just don't feel like that's been... a a prominent part of the way that I've been trained. So that's been a a real takeaway for me um, working with these guys.
0: Yeah, and I think that really goes to the concept about leader and leadership that we see in some of our healthcare teams. And like you, I also feel like we should be starting to make the team take responsibility for the leadership they get and instead of saying to the team leader, why didn't you do a recap, Uh, saying to the team, why didn't you prompt one? what stopped you cognitively offloading the team leader by being a semi-autonomous airway team at the head of the bed and so i I think you're right i think we should be imagining much less that the team leader has a big superman t-shirt on and can manage both the decision making and the event on their own uh Some of these teamwork behaviours are kind of interesting and and I did want to ask you, Alex, because I think you brought up closed-loop communication. It's something I vacillate a little bit about. And one of the reasons I do is that we often have so many people in a room and if every action results in a loop of communication, you end up with a very noisy room. And so I wonder about this balance between the implicit and the explicit communication because we also do see some teams that work together a lot, that get away with not saying very much and yet they have excellent communication. And I'm wondering how you saw that balance in terms of particularly in that some of the you mentioned being in a trauma sim, uh, how you would manage still to get this loop and read back while maintaining some signal and noise ratio.
2: Yeah, I, I, think, I think sims that go really well do have that, that those periods of silence uh, and still as you say uh, the communication is is very clear and the key with that would be salient communication so in flight in flights we call it a sterile cockpit and that's periods where workload potentially will pick up um, and we're able to reduce conversation and chatter down to the basic most important uh, items in other words uh changing of uh, autonomous modes in the, in flight uh, announcing uh, different changes uh, in configuration of the aircraft speed direction and then everything else has to remain silent and so i think in simulation we've seen that where where we've seen um, a trauma sim move to an intubation for instance uh, it, it works really well when then everybody gives gives control to the anesthetist at that moment uh, and everybody else respects the the uh the concentration that's required that goes into that that intervention. I think it's very similar to flight crew that we we, we have that respect and that sterile cockpit environment. So I would say that that's the key, is salient communication um, when when things occur that, that perhaps require concentration and avoidance of distraction as well.
0: Mm, yeah. Yes, and, and it seems like you have good forms of words and triggers for that period, like mm. using the terms like sterile cockpit. All right, well... Um, Robbie, I'm going to come back to you here because we've talked a lot about teamwork behaviours, but it sounds to me from some of the conversations you and I've had is that you've also been shaping a bit of culture, in particular the collaboration between different units. Do you think that has just been a COVID thing? Do you think the sims have been a part of that? Do you think some of these conversations and external reflections back to the team have helped? I just wondered what your thoughts were about that shaping culture.
2: Yeah,
1: I think it's a combination. Uh, I think COVID has really had an impact on how people feel at work. I definitely have felt a bigger sense of togetherness, both with my colleagues in my department, but also outside of my department. Um, And I'm sure that's been an experience that people have had all over the place. Um, I definitely feel like the SIM project has sort of dovetailed neatly with that. You know, we're doing multi-specialty sims every week now. I've got to know multiple anesthetists really well, and you know, now I would consider calling them really good close colleagues and friends. And I feel like it really has kind of, it's created a different vibe in the whole hospital. Everybody knows about the sim project, um, and everybody is, you know, I think, getting a bit of a thrill out of training together. And again, coming back to COVID, you know, I think there is that kind of existential element to COVID that we all feel. And so... The the idea of training together as one team, it just has, it's just really, I feel, is the best way of attacking this new enemy, in a way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Can I ask you that question in a slightly different way, Alex? And again, it seems to me that some of the behaviours that you aspire to and train towards as pilots are underpinned by some pretty strong values about speaking up and about safety and about openness, about uh errors. Uh have you you must have watched the culture of healthcare and the kind of interfaces that Robbie's describing with interest?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's bit it's been a very different it's, it's a very different different vibe when it comes to that safety culture. Uh I think in aviation we this just culture we have where we we're free to speak up uh and and we're forever filing uh, forms, reports, safety events, anything that, even if it hasn't happened, could have happened, is enough for us to trigger uh, filing reports. Uh, and I think what's actually been beautiful about this project now is that we have uh, a head of patient risk who is uh, is observing the sims with us and, and uh, creating latent safety threats, which I don't know is perhaps something that's always happened in the hospital in simulation, but uh, but from our side of things, uh, that is absolutely wonderful to see because that 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 growth or that that small change, albeit just at this hospital now, uh, really does align with that aviation mentality of safety and culture of safety. Uh, and I think it's been really well received as well. It's it's so proactive, uh, and 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 that that has been thanks to that collaboration of so many different teams, including the hospital management, uh, to actively be involved in that. So. So that just culture and safety is, is yeah, it's been wonderful to see.
0: Yes, and I suspect that has an impact way beyond any individual sim uh, because you're sending very strong messages just by doing it. Uh, and then you hope that then the organisation has got the wherewithal to act on it because I guess that's the next phase after discovering things. All right, well, I think we could probably talk for a long time, but just for our listeners, we'll probably think about starting to wrap up. But I'm interested from both of you about, uh, you know, where to from here? What uh, advice would you give people who don't necessarily have someone as fabulous as Captain Alex Jolly to go along to their simulations? Um, Maybe uh, you first, Robbie, and then you, Alex, Uh, tips for the rest of us who maybe can learn from your experience. What would you say?
1: It's a difficult one to answer because I don't feel uh, in a position to be giving lots of people advice. There are people far more qualified than me to talk about how to instigate an in-situ sim program. But I I guess the thing that I think that we did well is we just did it. We didn't ask for permission. I just said, mate, you don't have clearance, but here's a badge, come to a you know, let's, we're going to do a sim. I mean, even before the pilots arrived, we just cracked on and did it. You know, there wasn't, um, we didn't think about it too much. And it's, we've just changed it with time. So we've kept doing it. We kept iterating with each one. And we've, you know, we've talked about what went well, what went badly. And we've, I feel, got to a point where we feel pretty, Not slick. That's the wrong word. But I mean, you know, just this morning we we did a sim in 40 minutes with some clear learning and I feel like it really benefited the participants. And, you know, it just it happened easily. And I think that that's because we were brave enough just to crack on and do it at the beginning. In terms of like, you know, involving people like Alex, you know, if you get people that potentially have got value, just get them to watch um, I feel like people I think we get stuck in a bubble in healthcare. You know, we're very institutionalized, particularly us in the NHS. We're incredibly institutionalized folk. And so when you have someone there who's quite interesting and clever, get them to watch what you do and give you some, you know, some unique perspective. And that's what we did, and it's really, really paid off.
0: Yeah, fantastic. So just do it. Uh, but more importantly, uh do it iteratively and improve as you go, uh, and then, yes, make the most of any hybrid vigour that you can. Uh, Alex, would you have some similar reflections or different ones?
2: Perhaps slightly, slightly different ones. Um, I would say that one of the beauties of this project is that we've been able to produce write-ups um, that, that are accessible for everybody. And so I think even if you aren't able to get involved or watch one, and I appreciate everyone is extremely busy all the time in hospitals, there there will be access to these documents, these, these analysis, the non-technical write-ups. Uh, and I'd like to think hopefully that people can read those perhaps before they embark in a certain uh, field or expertise. Uh, and, and, you know, they've got the free choice to, to pick and choose or, or work out which ones might, might be useful for them. So I think that that will certainly help. The other thing I'd have to say as well is that this is, this is definitely a, a two-way learning uh, exercise. Uh, and personally speaking, uh, I had to revalidate my license having not flown for four months, but having watched about 28 sims up to that point uh, in uh, various different departments. And it was incredibly helpful for me before I went into my sim exam uh, that I had this wealth of human factors experience having watched so many sims. Uh, and so I think the message would be that Yes, we're here as flight crew, and that, that is a, a brilliant experience, but it's a brilliant experience for everybody involved. And, and I've learned so much as well uh, from from my time at the Whittington so far. And as Robbie said, hopefully the sustainability of this project, certainly with aviation looking still very uncertain going into next year. Uh, there's just so much opportunity for for both professions to collaboratively learn.
0: Well, that's very generous of you both, but I think what you say there alex is good and, and it means it, it would be some incentive for others to go and find people like yourself that might be likely to collaborate because they would feel reassured that the benefit wasn't just uh, one way uh well look gentlemen, it's just been such a fantastic insight into what sounds like a fabulous program uh obviously the thing to remember here is i th- I think what you're doing also has the potential to save lives and improve patient care, and really that's what we hope that simulation is all about. So I'll thank you both. And just before we do, I will give another shout-out to Robbie's podcast because it's pretty good. That enthusiasm that you heard tonight, uh, Simulcast listeners, is definitely evident at pondermed.com. So go and see what else uh, Robbie has to offer there. And uh, I will sign off as well. I'll say thank you to you both. And this is Victoria Brazil signing off for Simulcast.